All right, well, good morning again. Good to see all of you. I invite you to grab your Bible, make your way to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be there in just a minute. While you're getting there, I'm going to have a lot of kind of questions today uh, to the audience of have you ever noticed this? Have you ever seen this? And so we'll get started with the first one. How many of you have uh, seen either like on a bumper sticker or if you're on social media on a uh, as a hashtag on whatever, um, the title of the message that that's written on your sermon guide, hashtag blessed. How many of you have seen that? Whatever. Yeah, a good number of us. When someone uses that, what, what are they trying to say? And like, well, I want to begin with kind of a two-part answer. The first part, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, they are just trying to acknowledge and say thank you to Jesus for the way that they feel that they've been blessed, whatever that may look like. So giving them the benefit of the doubt, that may be what they're doing. Other people, though, are just kind of doing that as a, as a false humility, like kind of a show. Hey, look at me. I've been blessed. Look at me. Look at me. Don't you wish you were blessed like me? But either way that you take those things, the one thing that they have in common is that pretty much both of those approaches are stating and going forward with a very anthropocentric or worldly or man-centered definition of what it means to be blessed. And so, you know, to be blessed means that you have, you know, you're driving a Lamborghini. It means that you have wads of cash. You've got a big house. You live in a certain neighborhood. You, you, your body is healthy. You, um, have, you know, um, position and you have power or maybe you've won a political victory or whatever and you're hashtag blessed. And listen, all those things could be a blessing. They could also be a cursing. And God's given you over to the God replacement of your choice. And so while the world and even the church sometimes would hold up an individual, a situation, say, hey, that person is blessed. The word of God through the Beatitudes, Jesus comes to us and says, no, friends, you've got your way off here. A blessed person actually looks like this. And so you can join me now in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Note that. If you're persecuted for being a jerk, that's on you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, these are called the Beatitudes. 
And they are God's definition of a person who is truly hashtag blessed. God's definition. And we're going to be going through the first three of these this morning. And it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through them in total. Uh, But before we dive into the first three, we do need to kind of pull up a little bit and look at them as a whole. Look at them as a block and notice a couple of things about them. Three things about them, in fact. The first thing we need to understand is that these are not just random things that Jesus rattled off. Okay? They're not random. And they are also not like spiritual gifts where, you know, you might have one and and, and you might have one and, and I might have a different one and we all have a different spiritual gift. That's not how these work. These are more like the fruit singular of the Spirit. It's not fruits of the Spirit. It's fruit. And so it's a collective whole. These things go together. And so every virtue is to be found in every believer. This isn't a buffet we pick and choose from. All right? It's not Golden Corral. And so to give you a definition, let me write this down. The Beatitudes are a holistic portrait of a kingdom citizen. The Beatitudes are a holistic, right? All together. You don't pick and choose here. A holistic portrait of a kingdom citizen. Because they portray the heart of the king. They portray the heart of the king. That is, they not only describe a disciple, they describe the master. They don't just describe the disciple, they describe the master. Because think about it, Jesus mourned. Jesus was meek. Jesus thirsted and hungered for righteousness, right? He was perfect. Jesus was merciful. Jesus was pure in heart. Jesus was a peacemaker. Jesus was persecuted. In fact, the only beatitude that Jesus does not claim for himself is the first one, being poor in spirit. Because as we're going to see in a few minutes, to know, uh, like to be poor in spirit is to know one's spiritual neediness, particularly your sinful nature. And Jesus was perfect. He was not poor in spirit the way we are. And so the Beatitudes are a picture of people who are blessed because they are a picture of people who resemble their Lord. People who are, Romans 12, not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but are being transformed into the image of Christ. They're resembling their Lord. And so, I mean, you can think about it this way. Uh, It makes sense to you a little bit. If you are a parent or you've ever mentored someone, taught someone, something like that, it warms your heart when you see your child or the person you're mentoring like reflect positive things from your life, right? 
Now, it breaks your heart if you notice they picked up really bad habits from you. That, that breaks your heart. But if you notice they're following you in, in a way, like they've picked up some positive things from your life, that warms your heart. You know, when people come to me and they're like, oh, you know, your daughter's just like you, Joe. As long as it's a good thing, that warms my heart. Well, how much more does it warm the heart of God when His children resemble Him? And the Beatitudes lay out what that character that looks like the Father looks like. They lay it out for us. And they cause us then to ask the question, to look in the mirror and say, Is that me? Do I look like my Lord? Do I look like my Savior? Because he's both of those things, right? Can't have one without the other. They go together. Lord and Savior. Savior and Lord. And so the Beatitudes are a holistic portrait of a kingdom citizen. And to be sure, the virtues, the qualities, the characteristics that are laid out there, make sure you understand, they are supernatural. These must be birthed in us by the Spirit. Sure, people may have a little piece of it here or there, just naturally common grace in the world, but those do, that, that's not glorifying ultimately to God. He, with, these things must be birthed in us. They're not inherent to our fallen nature. They have to be cultivated by the Spirit of God. But here's the really good news about the Beatitudes. They not only show us like what you and I should be, they also describe to us what we can be. Because, because of the gospel, because of the work of the Spirit in our lives, God can take the most self-righteous person and turn him into a meek person. He can take the most just self-centered, selfish person and turn them into someone who is humble. He can take someone who is self-sufficient and turn he or she into someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He can take the proudest man and turn him into someone who understands his poverty in the Spirit. Not only what we should be, but what we can be. Praise God, the Spirit changes us. The second thing we need to notice about the Beatitudes kind of as a whole... is that there's eight of them, right? There's eight of them. Now, some people would say there's nine of them, and they would say verse 11 is a different one, but I think verse 11 is really just kind of describing verse 10. It doesn't give a a reward. It doesn't follow the same pattern. I think it's just a little bit of a deeper dive into verse 10. But there's eight of them. And I want you to notice the first and the eighth one. I want you to notice something about it. So look at the first one there in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice there in the 8th one, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the first one and the last one have the exact same reward. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and notice it is present tense, like right now. All the others are future tense. You shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied and on and on and on. And what this teaches us is that the kingdom of God is a already and not yet reality. 
Like we are already saved. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are already a citizen of the kingdom. It is already, Jesus inaugurated it when he came. You are already saved. You have already been redeemed. You've already been adopted. You are already receiving pieces of comfort, pieces of satisfaction. But those things are not yet fully here and won't be until Jesus cracks the skies and comes again. New heavens and new earth come down. Revelation 21, there's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more mourning. There's no more crying. There's no more pain anymore for the former things have gone away and God is making all things new. And so there's an already not yet dimension that we need to understand here. And so from an introductory standpoint, number one, understand Beatitudes are a holistic portrait of a kingdom citizen. Number two, they point to the already not yet reality of the kingdom. And then finally, before we dive in, we need to just kind of get our arms around, like, what does it mean? What, what does the word blessed here mean? Because like in our day and age, we use the word blessed in a ton of different ways. Right? We say bless you when someone sneezes. We say a blessing before the meal. And then particularly here in the South, if you say bless your heart, you're really saying you stupid idiot. <laughs> but the word here, as Jesus is using it here, if you literally translate from the Greek, it literally means happy. So some people would read this as like a roadmap to, to happiness. Now listen, it is good, it is a good and right God-given thing to want to be happy. God put that in us to drive us to our complete and ultimate satisfaction, which is found only in Him. Now we try to fill it with a gazillion different God replacements or say, God ultimately wants me to be happy and so I can ignore His Word and go in this direction and nothing could be further than the truth. Happiness is found in following the Lord. But it's obvious just from the context here that just I feel a subjective feeling of happiness can't be what Jesus is talking about here. Because if we just straight up translated it happy, I mean, verse two or verse four wouldn't even make any sense. The second beatitude wouldn't even make any sense. It would read like this. Happy are those who mourn. That doesn't even make any sense at all. And then, you know, further, like, it is not always a happy thing to be a peacemaker. And when you try to be a peacemaker, what winds up happening is you wind up taking shots from both sides. You make everybody mad. I know this. And so it can't just be a subjected feeling of happiness. It's got to be more than that, obviously. And so blessedness, here we go, is primarily a declaration of what God thinks about us. That's what blessedness is. It is primarily a declaration of what God thinks about us. And so to be blessed means to be congratulated on a deeply religious level, in a deeply religious sense. And so the emphasis is way more on divine approval than human feeling. It's way more on divine approval than human feeling. But then again, nothing should make us happier than knowing that we delight the Lord. Right? That Daddy smiles when we resemble Him. 
God smiles on folks like that. And so just recapping big picture, three things that we've got to carry with us over the next several weeks as we stay with the Beatitudes. Number one, the Beatitudes are a holistic picture of a kingdom citizen. Number two, they talk about the already not yet reality of the kingdom. And number three, the idea of blessedness is more about divine approval than it is human feeling. All right. We need to hold on to those things for the next several weeks. Now we can talk about the three that we have before us today. And the first one, and the way we're going to do this is that I want you to write these down. I want you to write them all the way out. So the first one we're going to talk about, number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I told you I've got a lot of questions for you today. So how many of you have ever heard someone kind of trying to put Christianity down, maybe put you down, and saying something that like a Christianity is a crutch for weak people. Christianity is a, is, a, is a crutch for people who just aren't strong enough in the world. How many of you have heard people say something like that? Yeah. Now, follow up. How, how did that make you feel? When they said that, how did it make you feel inside? Did it make you angry that, that they would consider you weak? That they would consider you helpless and that you just can't make it on your own without some, you know, nebulous crutch to, to lean on? That's the way they would see it. How did it make you feel? Why did it make you feel that way? Like, did you get angry? Did you get upset? I think I'm weak. think I can't... Why? The answer is pride. We get angry because we're prideful. And someone telling me I'm weak, like the answer to that question is, is Christianity just for the weak? Is Christianity for people who need a crutch that they can't, you know, the answer is yes, absolutely. It totally is, completely, 100%. Jesus said himself, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so in other words, the only people who, Jesus says, the only people who will ever come to get from me what I came to give are sick people. People who know that they are spiritually and morally and very often physically in need. And friends, that's what poor in spirit is all about. And God says, I approve of those people. God says, I smile on that person. I smile on the person who recognizes their spiritual poverty and their need and that they are helpless. That person is blessed. See, friends, being poor in spirit is not about, like, monetarily poor at all. Okay, material poverty is no more of a virtue than material wealth. Those are morally neutral. They're not virtues. If it was a virtue in and of itself to be materially poor, then it would be unchristian of us to seek to aid people in poverty and oppression and things like that. We would be removing God's blessing from them. 
Right? That would be an unchristian thing to do. Being poor in spirit also is not saying that someone with like a deficiency of courage or zeal or someone who is depressed or just, you know, Eeyore, woe is me, just walking around all the time like that. Like a person with that, it's not saying that they are more pleasing to the Lord if that's their disposition. No, Jesus is pronouncing blessed is the person who says, I don't have a dime's worth of credit, no righteousness with which I might purchase entrance into the kingdom. Poverty of spirit then is declaring spiritual bankruptcy. It's the conscious confession of absolute spiritual destitution before the Lord. The poor in spirit is the person who senses deeply in their heart that they are impoverished and approaches God on the basis of his righteousness alone. We have none. Psalm 51, David prays at the end of a prayer of repentance. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Spurgeon puts it this way. The way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. And friends, I think think that this beatitude is listed first for a reason. Because I think it's the foundation of all of the beatitudes. Like if you get this one and you understand your spiritual poverty before the Lord, then all the others should flow as consequence. Which means, if you notice some of these other beatitudes that are missing in your life, you never actually understood this first one. Thomas Watson, not... Not the golfer, for those of you you know watch golf back in the 80s, but the Puritan from England wrote this. Till we are poor in spirit, we are not capable of receiving grace. He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. He is full already. I love this next line. If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. The glass is first emptied before you pour in wine. God first empties a man of himself before he pours in the precious wine of his grace. And furthermore, I'm still quoting here, Till we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. Before we see our own lacking, we never see Christ's worth. Poverty of spirit is salt and seasoning, the sauce which makes Christ's relish sweet to the soul. William Carey is often referred to as the father of modern missions. So when we prayed for TTI earlier, I mean, all of foreign missions, all the work. I mean, our church, we give 11%, over 11% of every dollar that you give goes out to 
foreign missions. And William Carey is often considered the, the father of foreign missions and spent his life, a lot of tragedy, a lot of suffering, but the things that he accomplished for the Lord throughout his life, he's buried in India, are remarkable and too many for me to kind of enumerate in here. I encourage you to read a biography, watch a, learn a little bit about William Carey, okay? But the point I want to make to you today, really, as it relates to porn spirit, comes from his tombstone there in India. It's very simple. All it says is, William Carey, August 17th, 1761, which means tomorrow, you know, be his 259th anniversary of his birthday date or whatever. Tomorrow's his birthday. Died June 9th, 1834. And then he has two lines. That's it. Line one. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. This guy who's done so much for the world. And listen, that is step one of understanding poverty of spirit. But it doesn't stop there. If it stops there, that's just self-loathing, okay? Which, I mean, you've got to understand your, your poverty, your spiritual bankruptcy. But it doesn't stop there. That is not where it stops. It wouldn't be poverty of spirit unless we go on to the ne- next line, which reads, On thy kind arms I fall. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm On thy kind arms I fall. Friends, this was his secret to dying and living. He cast himself, poor, helpless, despicable, on the kind arms of God. Because he knew the promise of Jesus. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, including the almighty and merciful arms of the king. And he will be with you. He will be the lifter of your head. So we don't loathe ourselves. We understand our bankruptcy and that we've been redeemed. And are delighted in by the king of kings. Not because of anything we've done either. But because of grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit who understand, who get that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then connected to that, very closely, blessed are those. And I want you to write it out all the way. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Okay, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, don't don't get confused here. Don't be mistaken. Jesus does not bless all forms of mourning. He blesses mourning that coheres with kingdom values. Which means that there are forms, there are kinds of mourning that God does not bless, right? God does not bless criminals mourning because they got caught. 
Right? He doesn't bless corrupt politicians that mourn their loss of power. He doesn't mourn corrupt presidents of universities that mourn their loss of power. God does not promise to comfort every one who mourns for anything. Nor does he, like, nor do, does this mean that the way to go through life is gloomy and just mournful all the time. I mean, our chief end as people created in the image of God is to worship and enjoy God forever. That's the Westminster Catechism of 1647. And so our purpose statement here, like, we ripped it off. We worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. And listen, also, yes, there is comfort when you lose someone dear to you that you love. There's comfort in, like, when you are brokenhearted. Absolutely, the Bible speaks to that in a gazillion different places. But specifically here, what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of mourning here is as it, it's the spiritual counterpart to being poor in spirit. It's where we not just know it, but it's where we feel it. And it's not enough to just acknowledge it with the head. It has to move to the heart. And so the mourning that Jesus is speaking of here is godly sorrow over our sin that produces repentance. And then comes comfort. Because we're forgiven in Christ. Friends, it is right for us to mourn sin. It is against God. It spits in His face. It harms relationships. It causes more damage. Sin has caused far more damage in this world than every nuclear bomb that's ever been produced if they all went off. And so it is good to mourn over our sin and realize what it is. And so our life should be marked by humility and an examining of our hearts. And mourning over our sin that leads to repentance, yet at the same time we must keep in mind that our guilt and our shame, our sinfulness has been paid for in Christ and there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that's the comfort, right? It's in Christ's forgiveness that's already and still coming. New heavens, new earth. No more even presence of sin. The penalty's been gone, taken away. And the power is progressively losing its hold on us. Someday the presence of sin will be gone. And so the morning Jesus is talking about here in verse 4 is this sort of spiritual mourning that makes us holy. And there's four things specifically that uh, we, we, as it relates to sin that we need to mourn for. I'm just going to go through them real quick. Letter A, B, C, and D. So letter A, Jesus blesses when disciples mourn over their own sins. Jesus blesses when disciples mourn over their own sins. And not just sin like in a generic sense. 
right? Like when you go to the doctor, if you, you know, got shot in the arm, and I don't know why I thought of that, it just came to me, but if you got shot in the arm, you're not just going to go to the doctor and say, hey, I don't feel well. You're going to point to the bullet wound and say, this hurts. This is a problem. It's the same thing when we confess sin to the Lord. Sometimes just confessing sin in a generic sense is a cover for not ever actually dealing with a specific sin. Letter B. Jesus blesses when disciples mourn over the sins of their brothers and sisters in the church. We should mourn over each other's sins. It should, we should mourn. Letter C. Jesus blesses when disciples mourn over the sins that pervade society. So now we're outside of the church. When we look at what pervades society... We look at abortion, we look at injustice, we look at oppression. Like the book of Amos, God will never avert his wrath against the sin of Israel, for they trample on the heads of the poor and deny justice to the oppressed. Amos 2, 6 and 7. Letter D, Jesus blesses when disciples mourn over indifference to the gospel. Where people are just indifferent to the gospel. Jesus, you see him crying over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like chicks under my wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. When was the last time you cried, you mourned over the lostness of your friends? Your neighbors? This community. And so may we mourn. But may we also find comfort. For those that are in Christ, our sins are forgiven. And so kind of as a capstone for for this section, I would just recommend to you to remember the words of John Newton. John Newton is the, you know, famous former uh, slave captain, like a, a captain of a ship, who became a Christian, became a pastor, and wrote the, a ton of hymns, the most famous of which is Amazing Grace. As he was getting older in life, he said this, My memory is failing, but two things I recall. That Christ, first, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a greater Savior. I am a great sinner. You say that? And Christ is a greater Savior. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then thirdly, those two flow straight into this one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so write that down. Verse 5 is right there in front of you. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
And the reason I say that the first two build and, and point straight to this one is because meekness is freedom from pretension. Right? It's freedom from pretension. I mean, if you have experienced the grace of God and you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then you have no right to have any bit of self-righteousness or swagger. You just don't. Because what did you do? You got saved. Who did that? Not you. Who plucked you from the muck and the mire? Like, you didn't do that. Jesus did that. And so you have no room to feel all self-righteous. I'm better than people. You didn't do anything. Jesus paid it all. It's not just a good song. It's truth. And so those who have been saved by grace are to be meek. The connection is clear. Poor in spirit, mourn, produces meekness. And listen, meekness isn't like cowardliness. It's, it's not fear to speak up in a situation, just being all shy and trembling all the time. All right? For Jesus... Meekness has nothing to do with personality or disposition. It's a character trait, a supernatural character trait enlivened by the Spirit. And it's a character trait that is the opposite of ambition and envy. It's gentle. It's humble. It's an unassuming approach of one who knows his spiritual poverty. And let that guide his behavior. Okay, it's not weak, but as you've probably heard before, it's strength under control. All right? You think it's like a silverback gorilla, you know, super strong, but so tender can cuddle with a newborn kitten. A better example would be Jesus, who could flip over tables, who can call down Fire is always meek. Always meek. And the meek, those who are humble, those who live with humility and defer to others, who consider others more important than themselves, they shall inherit the earth. Pointing again to our future hope. New heavens, new earth. Not a little sliver of promised land in the Middle East, the globe. New heavens, new earth. Blessed indeed are the meek. All right, final question. I've been saying I've got all these questions, you know, show of hands today. Final one. How many of you have seen Hamilton? Right. Now, the first service asked this question. Any of you seen the actual play? More hands in here than the first service. That is awesome. We watch it on Disney Plus because we're broke. That's how we do it. It was good. I mean, it's been pretty much nonstop at my house lately. Whether on the movie or the soundtrack. And it's a good movie it's just starting to have a bit of the frozen effect on me from a couple years ago. 
Let it go. I can't hear that again, right? But if you watch it, it really is good. And if you watch it, you've got to listen really, really close, right? Because, I mean, 144 words a minute. So you've got to listen very closely to pay attention. But if you do, you'll see that the words are, I mean, they're pretty doggone historically accurate to the situation and what was going on. But anyhow, one of the major characters in there, like historically, but I mean in the play, but also historically, is Aaron Burr, right? So the whole time, Aaron Burr, sir, right? That's how they always do it through the play. And Aaron Burr is the guy who shot and killed Hamilton. But the crazy thing is that Aaron Burr was actually the grandson of a pretty amazing dude. And Burr definitely did not follow in his grandfather's footsteps, but his grandfather's name is Jonathan Edwards, Puritan, leader in the first great awakening, one of America's foremost philosophers, even to this day, probably the greatest one, pastor, not perfect, he's got some issues, founder of Princeton, Uh, Princeton would kick him out today because they would not believe his true gospel. But Jonathan Edwards, reflective of what the Beatitudes are calling out to us, Jonathan Edwards wrote this, a lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper is the true distinguishing disposition of the heart of a Christian. A lamb-like, not puffed up, not beating my chest. A lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper is the true distinguishing disposition of the heart of a Christian. And again, friends, the Beatitudes forces us to look in the mirror and say, is that me. Do I look like my Savior? Do I look like my Lord? For it is those who are poor in spirit, mournful over their sin, and meek, who are truly hashtag blessed. That's who's blessed. Let's pray. Father, may we be people who are impoverished in our spirit. May we not be pride-filled and, and, and scared to admit that we need a crutch. Lord, we are broken. And Father, we readily admit that in here. We readily admit that when we come to you in prayer. I am broken and I have nothing but you. But Father, then we get in the world and we don't live it. We act like we are owed things. We deserve things. Help us, Lord, to live with the spirit of being 
spiritually bankrupt and in need. Father, help us. Help us to not be indifferent to sin. Not be indifferent to the sins of society. Not be indifferent to the sins of our brothers and sisters. And not be indifferent to our own sin. To just excuse away. Help us to mourn. To grieve our sin. To grieve it. To decide to leave it. And then run to Jesus for cleansing and finding the comfort of our forgiveness. And Father, help us to be people who are meek. These things do not come naturally to us. We do not, we, we, we are in and of ourselves. I mean, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And in and of ourselves, we are prone to the opposite of these things. And so, Spirit, help us. Help us to check our heart constantly when we get irritated about something that someone's written on social media and we start to fire off at it. Help us to check ourselves for meekness. And then quickly realize, man, maybe I'm not as holy as I thought I was. Drive us to humility. And help us to be people who are reflective of you. And we resemble our daddy. in our words and actions. We need you to do this, Jesus. So we do not have the strength. We're bankrupt. Help us, O God. And thank you for the Spirit who does. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.